Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Initially, I had planned on us uh, uh, finishing up John 17 this morning, but we will actually have another Sunday to finish up John 17. Our text today is verses 20 to 23. And this has much to say about one of the marks of a true church is that of unity. This is the the fifth petition of our Lord that he is praying for. He is praying for the unity of the church. Now, this isn't just a superficial unity that he is praying for. It's not a unity that is just uh, close associations here and, there, here and there, but this is a unity that is grounded in or patterned after Christ and the Father, because he will tell us in this passage that he prays that we would all be one, even as he and the Father are one. There is that spiritual, mystical union that true believers have one with another, in addition to the unity that we have in the mission of the church. Now, the question is, is as we're working our way through this passage, the question really comes in, do you seek to be unified with other believers? Because here's one of the, the, the disheartening things of many churches today, and you often find this in, in a lot of the bigger churches, is that people will get lost in the congregation in the sense of, and this is what they prefer, they, they enjoy to come and then leave. They, and it's not being part of the body, not being part of, of the organic unity of the church. They like to come and it's, it's kind, of a, um, kind of a scenario of, well, it's just me and Jesus kind of a thing. And so when the time of worship is over, then they leave. And there's not, there's not that fellowship, there's not that intimacy that is marked by the believers in any local church. So how far do our efforts go when it comes to having to do with one another as far as our relationships are concerned? What kind of effort are we putting in? How great is our commitment to this local body of believers? We had, not too long ago, an individual who felt like wasn't part of the group, wasn't part of the body, and so decided to leave. But the problem was, is that there was no effort put in in order to be part of the body. There must be an effort on our part, because we have to understand this, is that the church is not just here for us, but we are here for the church. That's the difference. We can come with the mentality that it's me, or we can come with the mentality of it's all of you. You know, beforehand, uh, there was there throughout our our ten years, you know, which were still a very young church, but there were conversations with with folks that had come and had left a long time ago, and. Those conversations were, well, I don't have to go 
to church, you know, and uh, this sort of thing. Um, but the fact of the matter is this, is that you may, or and it may enter into our minds sometimes that we don't need the church. But what we fail to think about is maybe you do have that outlook, but we don't think about that the people may need you. You may be needed. You may feel like you don't need them, but you may be needed. Because each one of us is gifted by the Spirit of God in order to edify the church, to build the church up. And so everyone is needed. Everyone has a place in the local church. This this unification here that is being referred to is really expressed with words like, like family. We're a church family. We're not church acquaintances. We're not just a uh, casual uh, acquaintance of one another. At least we shouldn't be. We are a faith family. That is to be what the church is about. Sometimes families argue. Sometimes we have disagreements. But the whole idea of being a faith family is you come together. We come together. And we love each other. There is that commitment on the part of, of the local church, of the believers in that church, to be devoted to one another, to love one another, to build each other up. And so in this passage where Jesus is praying for these things, these are really expressed mostly through the local church of this unity that he is referring to here. So that we need to ask ourselves and reflect upon, what is our relationship with this local body of believers? The church is to be united, and that is indeed what Christ our Lord has prayed for. So, as we work our way through this passage, let us be reflecting upon ourselves. Sometimes we take each other for granted. And that is one of the other um, traps that we can fall into, is that we take each other for granted. But there should be an effort on all of our part continually to be edifying the body, to cultivate unity among the body of believers in the local church. If you would, please stand with me as we read the Word of God. And we will read chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the scripture. Verse 20. This is Jesus speaking. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, Father, we seek the Holy Spirit of God to work within our hearts. We seek His, His guidance as 
we work our way through this passage, that you would take this beautiful text of our Lord praying, Father, and bring it to, to light. Help us to understand it. Give us, give us such a desire to carry out these very truths that we may be a church that honors you. Father, bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Of course, we are nearing the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer. And I pray that this is not a chapter that we have really just kind of glossed over, but a chapter in which we have given our attention to it to see the beauty of what is happening here of this glorious prayer of our Lord Jesus, who is God in the flesh, as He is rendering this unto the Father. And you see that love and that intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is not absent from that, by the way, even though it's a prayer from the, from the Son to the Father. There is that perfect unity and fellowship and agreement and agreement and mission. The oneness, all of that is, is seen throughout this entire prayer and it is so encouraging to, uh, to know that when Christ is in his last hours, as far as his, his earthly life before he goes to the cross, that he is praying on behalf of his people. He is praying not only on behalf of the apostles, but he is praying on behalf of you. You and me. The night in which he is going to give his life as a ransom for many. He has petitioned the Father for a number of things. He has petitioned the Father on behalf of, of His people for the joy and the peace and the sanctification that comes through Him of protection. And He appeals to the Father once again here in our passage of bringing us together that we may be united, united in Him. In verse 20, we see that Jesus is, has been praying for the apostles, but now he turns his attention to not only the apostles, but for all who believe. He is praying for all who believe. So that when we're looking back in, earlier in the prayer and you see that joy and the peace and the protection and, and the sanctifying work within the word of God, or through the word of God, it is indeed for all believers that he's not just praying on these alone, but for all, he says. All who believe in me through their word. And this, this is something to keep in mind, that since he is indeed praying on behalf of all who believe, that this is really showing the extent to which Jesus is coming and, and, and the intent of the atonement. That he is not just dying for those that are Jewish in Israel, but he is making this, this statement of all who believe, which is extending to, to the ends of the earth, of all who believe in him. He is praying for them. And that really brings to mind the inclusion of the Gentiles, that it was always anticipated that the Gentiles would be included into the family of God. Jesus had actually prayed, of course, back in John chapter 10, Verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. 
and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. He's referring not just to the, the nation of Israel, but the nations is who he is referring to. Interestingly, back in, in Luke, Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue, and this is, and this is the time in which he, he preaches from Isaiah, what we understand to be Isaiah 61, It also is a demonstration that his, his mission was not limited to Israel alone. He says this, and we'll, we'll jump in verse 16, and we'll just read it to understand the context. He's beginning his public ministry there in Galilee. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, verse 16. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote me this proverb. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and, no one, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian." And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. So what is his point of saying the things that he is? He is saying to them, basically, I'm preaching to you. No prophet is welcome in his hometown. You're not believing. But then he adds these examples here. In the time in which Elijah was alive and Israel had turned from the Lord, that he wasn't sent to them, to the widows of Israel. He was sent to a Gentile widow. And then when Elisha... When Elisha was, was the, the main prophet after Elijah had been taken to heaven, Elisha wasn't sent to the lepers in Israel. He was sent to Naaman the Syrian. So it is giving an indication there that in the time in which Israel would turn from the Lord, that God would be gracious to the Gentiles. And this is, this is the anticipation of what was to be revealed fully in the time of our Lord when He would come because it was always the plan. When you think back to the, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of Abraham was, in you all the nations, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Isaiah 42, He says in verse 6, I am the Lord... 
I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. When you think of the great psalm of Psalm chapter 2, the inheritance that the Father gives to the Son is the nations. It was always anticipated that the Gentiles would be brought into the family of God, and you see elements of that even in the Old Testament, in which God will be gracious to Gentiles. So even Jesus, in the time in which He is on the earth, He is praying to the Father, He knows the scope of His mission. He knows to the extent in which he is going to offer his life. And I say that, and this may sound kind of redundant for us, but I say that because there is, there is that view out there that the church is only really a parenthesis in, in redemptive history. That Christ had come, offered the salvation to the Jews, they rejected him, and so he turns his attention to the Gentiles. And then when the time of the Gentiles are done, then he'll turn his attention back to Israel, the covenant people of God. And that's not it at all. When Christ had come, He inaugurated the new covenant, which was with the house of Israel in the house of Judah, according to Jeremiah, repeated in the book of Hebrews. And from there, the gospel went forth. The covenant people of God were not just the Israelites according to the flesh, but all who were of the faith of Abraham who would believe are now counted as the children of God. The scope was much wider than just the nation itself. As again, the Father has granted to the Son the nations as His inheritance. So when Jesus is praying here, and He's praying for all who believe through their word, He is not just limiting this to the scope of Israel. He is indeed, truly praying for you, for me, for all who believe across the globe. That in itself should give us some pause to think that the Lord of glory, the God-man, prayed for me, prayed for you. Yes, that is true. And then when the time comes that he goes to the cross, the very ones that he prayed for is the very ones that he's dying for. So that as he is enduring the very justice of his Father, all who believe are those that are on his mind and whose debt he is paying. All. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It should really astonish us to think that this, this passage of which we were reading almost 2,000 years ago has much application to us because He's praying for us. He's praying for you. And the very thing that He prays for, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for, but for those also who believe in Me through the Word, that they may be one, even as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that You sent Me. He's praying for unity. He's praying for unity among 
the body of Christ. The question is, is what kind of unity is he referring to? Is he talking about ecumenism? This is really more of an emphasis on the organized unity um, of, of, of the church as a whole. Just an organizational unity. And a great example of that would be the Roman Catholic Church during the time of the Middle Ages. There was really only one church. And the organization of that church was, was covering the whole of, of the empire. Not until the Great Schism. Then you had the Eastern Orthodox. And then to the West, you had the Roman Catholic Church. Then there was really two. But what happened during that period of time when you had organizational unity across the board? Was it a time in which the people of God were seeking holiness and godliness? Or was it a time in which much corruption began to flow through the church in the ecclesiastical authority? It wasn't a good time in history. It was a time in history when many of the people of God, especially if you were the poor, were really shunned, really left in the dark, especially if you didn't speak Latin. You had no idea what the priest was saying. Then the corruption that would take place within the organization itself trickling down to the people and the people not knowing any better. So there's no truth that is being declared. There's no, there's no true unity there that is surrounded and grounded in truth because nobody knows what the truth is. Because the ones who control the word of God are those that are in power. Nobody else knows what it says. They have to take the word of the priest or... or one of the patriarchs, if you were in the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's not talking about organizational unity. It's not talking about unity in the sense of conformity, that we all look alike. We all dress alike. We have the same Bibles. We sing the same songs across the board to everybody. That's not it at all either. It's almost an insult to try to bring about that kind of a unity. It'd almost be like if the entire church went to the same Christian school and we all had to wear the same outfits and, and have the same books and the same... That's not, that's not what is referred to here in the unity aspect of things either. By all means, we want to see diversity. We want to see diversity in the personalities of the people. We want to see diversity in, in, in the, the, the work that people do, the, that they do. We want to see diversity in, in the way in which we worship. Not in the sense of contemporary and traditional, any of that stuff. But different cultures have different ways in which their music will accompany the very truths that they sing. Not everybody has the same Bible because we're, we're different in the languages. So we're not talking about conformity. The kind of unity is the unity that is grounded in Christ and the Father. That kind of a oneness, that spiritual unity. One man, one man says this, The church is to have a spiritual unity involving the basic orientation, desires, and will of those participating. Paul points to this unity in writing to the Corinthians saying, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works in all of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
It's an organic unity. It's a spiritual unity. It's a, it's a unity that is grounded in the truth of God. That's the unity that we're seeking after. That's, the uni- that's true unity. You don't have real unity with people, especially if you disagree with them on truth. But the people of God is to have unity surrounding the very word of God. Because from that brings about the close relationships and the close fellowship because we have that oneness of mind, that oneness of mission, that oneness of heart. It's grounded in something that is, that is solid, objective truth, which is the word of God. Now, how do we mesh that with all the, the denominations that we have? Well, again, as we had talked about beforehand, if we look at the, this very truth, that when it comes to the spiritual mystical union, that all true believers that are in Christ are indeed united because we have the same Spirit. It is the one Holy Spirit of God that has regenerated the hearts, regardless if they believe if regeneration comes before faith or it comes after faith. Those some disagreements. But if they are true believers, they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And so we are all united. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we were all baptized with one Spirit. The baptizer who baptized us into the one spirit was the one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same Lord. We have the same Father. We have the same Holy Spirit of God that is granted to us. So even though there are differences of, of views when it comes to certain, certain things, some a little more serious than others, the basic unity is there. We are united in the Spirit of God. We are united in Christ We are united in the Father. We have the same unity of mission with all believers. Regardless of how the church tends to carry it out. And again, there's disagreement with that. The mission of the church is to see the lost saved. That's the mission of the church. To evangelize, bring people into the fold of God. The disagreements that we have, and some are needed... Truly, they are. But the dis- some of the disagreements that we have, unless we get into some really rank heresy, do not determine whether the person is a believer or a non-believer. Once you get into the realms of some really bad theology and, and into the, uh, you leave orthodoxy and you head into heresy, then this is called to say, you're, you're, you're not really of the fold, especially when you deny the very central doctrines of the script of the scripture. As James, or it was uh, Martin Lloyd Jones. He had said that he will not be united with anyone who denies the the atonement of of the Lord. Won't won't be united with anyone who denies the deity of Christ. There are things in which we don't unite because they are absolutely opposed to the Word of God. And that is very true. But generally speaking, all true believers, we are united with each other. So we recognize the universal church, the universal church of our Lord. The universal church which encompasses all believers. Now, the things that are written to each church within the Scripture are things that we do need to give our attention to because the very unity that he is referring to to each body of believers is expressed more fully 
within the local church. That unity is expressed in us being the family of God. Through Christ's work, we are indeed a spiritual family. We are a spiritual house at the local level. We are a local body of believers. And actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, made reference to it a moment ago, <clears throat> when the Apostle Paul is referring to this body of believers here in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about believers on a local level here. Now, ultimately, like in Romans and in other passages in Ephesians, we see the entire the entirety of the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He's the savior of the body. But here, when this analogy is used in 1 Corinthians 12, he's not talking about the grand universal body of Christ, but he is talking about the local body of Christ. And we know that because when he is speaking here, we'll jump in verse 13. Well, I'll, we'll just read it and then we'll, we'll come back to it. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand... I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any, any the less a part of the body. And if an ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas... Our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which, is, which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now this is talking about the body of Christ in the local level. Now, how do we know that? Because he's referring to people within the church either being an eye or an ear or the head saying to the foot, I have no need of you. That would not be true if we're talking about the analogy using the universal body of Christ because Christ is the head. There's no individual member of the church that is the head, but only Christ. But here, the way the analogy is used, there are members of this local body that are an eye, being obviously considered to be an eye or an ear. So he's talking about the body of Christ at the local level here. And the fact of the language that he's using is actually where we even get the, the language of, of members of the body. Of members of the church. And as members of the local body of the, of the church, we all fit together in one way or another. 
whether we're an eye or an ear or a head or a foot or an arm or a hand or whatever, using that analogy, wherever we fit in, we are needed and we have purpose and we are not less honorable than another. And so when we come together recognizing each other's gifts and, and all of that, then we can function properly at the local level being united, united in truth, united in love. Because here's some of the things that our Lord says through the Apostle Paul of the nature of the local church. It is one of devotion. He says in Corinthians, also in Philippians, to be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and united, looking out for the, uh, looking out for the interest of others, edifying the church with your gift, loving one another, ministering to one another. These are things that happen on the local level, the local body. We may have different functions, gifts, and purposes, but there is a commitment and a love that is to be expressed in coming together. Each local body. The local church is itself an, an organic body of believers that are committed to one another. We're not simply a collection of friends or acquaintances, but we are to be much more than that. If we are members of the local body, using that analogy, then there is devotion and commitment on the part of ourselves to the people of God. We have responsibilities to each other. It is not just the responsibility of, of the elders or the deacons to do any of the ministering here. We have certain responsibilities that we perform, that we seek to do. But it is absolutely necessary on the part of all other believers that are part of this local body to minister to each other, to love one another, to be devoted to one another, committed to one another. Not simply to be a face that is here, but to seek to be truly part of the body of Christ and be united. You should be just as devoted to each other as anyone in leadership is to you. Would it be right for myself or Jason or any of the uh, deacons to devote more of our time of ministering and, and encouraging and comforting to people who are outside of this church rather than to you? Would that be right? There's an element in which we all minister to people outside the church, yes, but if all of our time and energy was devoted to others who are not in this church, would that be right? The answer is no, it would not be right. Because in each local church, the Lord has raised up elders, pastors, deacons, all for the purpose of that local body of believers. So when you are called here to this church, some of the closest relationships that you should have is with each other because that devotion should exist here. As much as the leadership is to you, you should be to each other. Not acquaintances. Not just a collection of friends. But to truly be a faith family who loves one another. That is the very thing 
of, of being part of the church is covenanting with the other members of that church to say, I will love you and I will look out for your interests more so than myself. I will prefer you above myself. I will seek to edify you above myself. And if we're all doing that together, everybody's being ministered to. Everybody's being loved. But we have this, this American idea that it should just be about us, perhaps, or we don't even want to be part of it. There are a number of people in my own family, of course. Not that side of the family. Another side of the family. Who love, who love to church hop. There is no commitment at all. They go this church, to this church, to this church, to this church, and there is no commitment on their part to any particular one. There is no commitment on their part to, to use any gift that God has gifted them with in order to minister to that local body. Because for them, it's all about them. I go here, I get something out of it. I go here, I get something out of it. I go here, I get something out of it. That's not the way that a church is to function. Our commitments to each other are much, much more than that. We are a faith family. We are a body. We are a fellowship of believers. And a fellowship, and actually that word fellowship, that koinonia, we've heard that term before, koinonia, it carries the idea of being partners. James Montgomery Boyce says this, partners as those who hold property in common or share in business are, are koinonoi. In spiritual terms, koinonia, fellowship, is had by those who share a common Christian experience of the gospel. But fellowship is not only defined in terms of what we share in together, it also involves what we share out together. And this means that it must involve the community in which Christians actually share thoughts and lives with one another. Thoughts and lives with one another. That's the kind of unity that you see within the early church in Acts 2. They're sharing together, they're giving together. They're, if anyone has need, all of that. That's, that's, that's showing the essence of the church and that fellowship. That's why, that's why being part of the church is not like being part of something else that exists. It's not a country club. A country club is a collection of friends or acquaintances. A country club isn't a faith family. A country club isn't a local body of Christ. As those I was referring to a moment ago, any can come and go, jump from church to church, never have a true family experience. But the nature of the local church is, again, devotion, not only to the Christ, but to each other. So listen again to these these characteristics of what a church should be. That they would be of the same mind, 
having the same love, being in full accord and united, looking out for the interest of others, edifying the church with your gifts, loving one another, ministering to one another. There is also the other side of the coin that is absolutely necessary and can only happen if you have committed people within a local congregation that are identifiable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, listen to this. This is, this is probably very familiar to us. This is going on in the Corinthian church. Chapter 5, verse 1, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed will be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with, with power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, these who are to be assembled are identifiable. Especially when it comes to the nature of disciplining another. That's the kind of commitment that we have and responsibilities that we have to one another. That the people of God have so committed themselves and have so devoted themselves that they are indeed identifiable so that when something like this comes about, we just don't have church hoppers coming in here who want to who want to participate in something, we know exactly who are those who are to love one another, devote one another, being of the same mind, so that those who are the identifiable body of Christ in the local church can indeed deal with the situation together. Those are responsibilities that we have on the other side of things, to each other. That kind of devotion, that kind of commitment. That's what we're talking about, of being united together. United together and in, in participating in the things that need to be dealt with and taken care of. To be united in truth. Everything that we're doing as far as being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, dealing with, with uh, members of the church that are in sin and all of this sort of thing is, is being expressed by the very foundation of the church which is the word of god we are united in that truth and because we are not united in that truth then it is expressed in how we deal with each other and we deal with sin within the church our doctrinal beliefs all of that matters one one theologian said this let us never be guilty of sacrificing any portion of truth on the altar of peace because then you don't have any truth. You don't have true truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. We, sur we, we, we surround ourselves with the truth of God. We, we commit ourselves to the truth of God. We respond to one another with the truth of God. We deal with one another in sin. If, if, you know, if someone's in sin, we deal with it by the truth of God. Everything is surrounded there so that we're all united there.
This is how we bring about unity. By the Word of God. And then at the local level, loving one another. Devoting ourselves to one another. And we may say things like, well, I just, their, their personalities are a little bit different than mine. Well, that's just showing the beauty and the diversity of, of the Lord and how He saves people from all walks of life. Those are good things. We shouldn't be seeking people that are only like ourselves. Some people may be entertained by that, but I don't know. To have people that are different, different personalities, different ideas. Not different ideas as far as coming up with new interpretations of Scripture, but to be able to look at the same passage of Scripture, maybe they dug a little further in it. Maybe the context of it is a little bit more apparent to them, and so we can, we can come together based on the truth of God, and we can learn from one another. Unity is, uh, is, is foundational to any healthy church. So how much do you seek after unity? How much do you strive to love one another with this kind of love? How devoted are you to one another? Those are questions we need to reflect upon. Because everybody matters. Everybody has a place. It doesn't matter which part of the body you would consider yourself to be. You are needed. Now, our Lord goes on there, and I'll try to be a little quick there. I know we're running, running out of time. Our Lord says some very interesting things in verse 22 after praying for the unity that, that would exist among the body of believers. He says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, and you and me, they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you love me. Now, what kind of a glory is it that Christ has given to his disciples? Is he, is he referring to his pre-existent glory? That would be a no. Because, as the Lord says, he does not share his glory with another. So what kind of glory is he referring to? Well, I don't think anyone is really fully in agreement on what this means. One theologian says this, the best answer is his manifestation of the character and blessing of God. Jesus has granted eternal life to his people, and this consists of the whole life of God within their experience, a life of joy, peace, and love through faith in Christ. So in this, it would be the blessing of salvation being granted to them by the Lord himself, the Lord dwelling in them, and then that life being lived out. In similar way in which Christ himself lived out those things in his own life. That peace and joy and that love not being our own, but expressed by us as the Lord is walking with us. <clears throat> Another theologian said, rather, this is sharing in the glory 
or honor that has been the hallmark of his ministry, of Jesus' ministry, glorifying the Father, expressing the character of God and lowly service to others. That's a possibility. Perhaps as we look at Christ and the mission of Christ itself, the glory that the Father had given to the Son was to reveal the Father and everything that He did. So that has been granted to the disciples and the people of God to express the very character and the nature of God throughout our lives. You know, as, as the, what was it, one uh, atheist had said, I think it was a German philosopher, he said, uh, show me your redeemed life and I might consider your redeemer. There's that, that level of, of expressing the very nature and the character of God through our lives and by the things that we speak revealing him. Could be that. Or it could be that as Jesus is praying to the Father, and he's even praying in the sense of having already completed his work when he hadn't yet, but he had said it in the past tense already as if it were a done deal. And perhaps this is what he is referring to when it comes to this glory which the Father had given to him, he has given to his disciples. So that in the same way that Paul uses this language in Romans chapter 8, Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. That's in the past tense, but it hasn't happened yet. But it is so sure that it is said as if it were already done. Just as Paul says in Ephesians, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. We're not seated with him in the heavenly places. We are united to him who sits in the heavenly places right now because of the Spirit of God is always in fellowship with the Father and the Son. But it is said already in the past tense as if it had already happened. Because it's a done deal. And by the work of our Lord Jesus in accomplishing all that He is setting forth to do within just a few hours of Him praying this prayer, what He is doing and all He is accomplishing is indeed for the blessing of His people to be glorified in Him. So we can indeed perhaps understand it in that way. that this is referring to the future glory of the people of God that has been brought about by Christ Himself. Because the culmination of our salvation is not when you die now and you go home to be with the Lord, while indeed your body goes to the dust of the earth, your spirit goes home to be with the Lord, and you are in a state of perfection. That is referred to as the intermediate state. But your salvation isn't done yet. Not until the Lord returns and the resurrection occurs. When the resurrection occurs, and you are united into a physical glorified body, that is the culmination of your salvation, when you are glorified in Him. Some of the most beautiful language that, that I think really expresses that is in the book of Revelation. When you're looking at Revelation chapter 21, and you see the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven, that is like a bride adorned for her husband, having the glory of God on her, that I understand that to be, in my opinion, that is a reference to the church, the people of God, being glorified in Him at the resurrection. He is praying not only for the peace and the joy and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the protection, the unity, but He is praying for the future glory as well that we will experience at His appointed time. These are the things our Lord's praying for. So these are the things 
that we should seek after. We can't seek after our own glorification. That is all in the hand of the Lord. But in the context of what we're reading today, we can truly seek after the unity that should exist within the local body of the church. To love one another. Look at that last statement there. He says in verse 23, So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Think of that statement of what the Son is saying. The Lord Jesus is, is bringing about this, this reality of the Father's love. That the love that the Father has for you is not a diminished love. It's not a lesser love than what He loves the Lord Jesus with. Christ is saying that this is the same love. The same love that the Father has for the Son of God is the same love that the Father has for all the people of God because you are in the Son. Think of that kind of love. The inexpressible love. And now think of how well or how well we don't express that kind of love to each other. How can we not when we receive so great a love? That's the kind of love that we need to devote to one another as far as finite humans can. To be that devoted to one another to indeed be a family. Committed to one another, devoted to one another, and to love each other in spite of our faults. I have many faults. And... I'm so thankful for the people that love me in spite of my faults. We should love each other regardless of our faults because that's the kind of love that we receive. Can we say that the love that the Father has given to us is a love that is deserved to us because of how well that we've done? That would be a no. So we shouldn't withhold that, that love to each other. This is what a church is about. Devotion to each other. Love to one another. To be a family. So, how well are we trying to cultivate that in this local body? How well are we showing the importance of each person here and how they are needed? How well are we expressing to each other what things that we might be able to do in ministering to one another? How well are we doing? If we think to ourselves in these very moments, I haven't done very well. And I'm sure we're all thinking that. Not about you, but us individually. Then we understand that we have some things that we need to do better. The church isn't about the pastors, it's not about the deacons, that's not the focus. Focuses the entire body in us functioning together and loving each other. And I pray indeed that we would do that. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you for this portion of your word and thank you for this beautiful prayer of our Lord Jesus in which he expresses his desire to see the people of God united. And Father, as we indeed have unity with others that are outside the church, uh, with other believers. Oh, Father, help us to be 
even more diligent to be united with one another in this local body. That we will be a local church that is expressing the love of the greater church that is devoted to one another, devoted to you above all things, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love and unity. Let us be a church that honors you. Father, be with us in in the coming days as we seek to cultivate these very truths within our own life and in the life of the church. Guide us by the Spirit of God. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Conform us. Whatever is necessary that you would be honored. Thank you for the work of Christ. Thank you for his death and his resurrection that has secured our salvation, that has secured this, this unity in which we seek after. Father, thank you for the privilege of being part of the local body. But thank you so much that we are indeed part of the universal church of Christ because you called us, you justified us. And at your appointed time, you will glorify us in this great gift we've received through faith alone. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, Amen.